0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, issues of war and peace. We'll discuss the breakthrough in the peace talks for the Colombian Civil War and tensions in Venezuela with its neighbors in both Colombia and and Guyana. But first, Natalie Alinger is away this week, but Brooklyn Engel joins us and she has our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
1: Various rulings in Brazil this week have many renewing their calls to impeach President Dilma Rousseff. Brazil's Supreme Electoral Court has opened an official investigation into charges. The president accepted illegal campaign contributions during her re-election campaign last year contributions that could be linked to the wider corruption scandal involving the state oil firm called Petrobras. Also, a special audit court has ruled that President Rousseff did not obey congressional guidelines for the country's budget, illegally obtaining as much as $26 billion to spend last year without proper congressional approval. Some experts predict that ruling could lead to impeachment proceedings. Professor Carlos Pereira at the Virtulio Vargas Foundation, an expert on Brazilian politics, reacted to these developments. So this is, this is a tremendous mess. The president is under the charge of criminal responsibility, so the
2: impeachment might be open.
1: Rousseff's government plans to appeal that ruling by the Audit Court all the way to Brazil's Supreme Court in an attempt to head off any move toward impeachment. We'll have a full in-depth interview with Professor Pereira about the various scandals affecting Brazil on this program next week. <laughs> Last week, the U.S. government revealed its latest charges against Venezuelan officials, who they say are linked to high-level drug trafficking. The U.S. accuses one former top commander in the Venezuelan secret police and one of Venezuela's former anti-drug police commanders with running a major narcotics ring with links to the country's police and military establishment. The U.S. government says Venezuela is a hub for worldwide narcotics trafficking, moving several billion dollars' worth of drugs annually, primarily cocaine. Venezuela's President, Nicolas Maduro, says such charges are an attempt by the United States to destabilize his government. We'll hear more about corruption in the Venezuelan military later on in this program. <music> Guatemala's President, Alejandro Maldonado, has approved more than $2.5 million in aid for victims of a mudslide in his country. A wall of mud more than 80 feet deep crushed the neighborhood of Santa Catarina, Penula, in Guatemala City last week, killing at least 215 people. At least 300 people remain missing. The Guatemalan government promises it will build new housing for the survivors. Guatemala's National Disaster Reduction Commission warned six years ago that the area was threatened by erosion and was in danger, but the residents say they were never officially told to move and the government did not take action on the commission's warning. (laughs) Argentina's president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner may be in her last month of office, but this week, she proved she still knows how to bust a dance move, even at the age of 62. Fernandez burst into a spontaneous dance this week at a campaign rally for her political successor, Daniel Scioli, and in doing so, she upstaged the candidate who is the frontrunner to take her place. Fernandez is controversial, but still widely popular. She can't run again due to term limits. Her dancing to a rock version of one of the campaign songs became an internet sensation with hundreds of thousands sharing the video of the dancing president although on its twitter account the british independent dubbed her the worst dancer in the world for latin pulse i'm brooklyn engel
0: thanks brooklyn and thanks for helping our production team this week our shout out goes to our listeners in brazil This past season, our large group of listeners in Brazil was only surpassed by listening groups in the U.S. and Mexico. So we say obrigado to all of our listeners in Brazil and elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn our attention to the peace talks in Havana, Cuba, talks aimed at finishing the Colombian Civil War. That war has run for more than 51 years. The war has claimed at least 220,000 lives and left Six million people as refugees. Recently, Colombia's President Juan Manuel Santos has promised that the long running talks will produce a peace treaty in the next six months. The rebels, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a group known as the FARC, has agreed to a National Truth Commission, a commission that will likely reveal both their human rights abuses and those conducted by the Colombian military. But the FARC is less clear on promises of a peace timetable we asked Adam Isaacson for his analysis of the talks Isaacson is with the Washington office on Latin America Wola he joined us via Skype from Washington DC
3: they've been talking now for 3 years the, the peace talks officially got underway in mid October of 2012 and now we're in early October as we're speaking of 2015 and the government and and the FARC guerrilla group have you know they've been very slowly progressing along an agenda of 6 points The big breakthrough on September 23rd was that they got past what almost everybody thought was the most difficult, thorny, horrible agenda point, which was transitional justice. Uh, How do you take the worst human rights violators? How do you take a guerrilla group that hasn't been defeated, get their leaders to turn in their weapons, and then somehow pay a penalty for what they did, something like jail? They seem to have gotten that they seem to have gotten at least close to that which is pretty remarkable what remains to be negotiated there are some issues that uh, you know are still going to be pretty thorny but it's easier than what they just did and the government announced and the FARC has uh, been a little uh, more ambivalent about but the government announced that within six months there would be a final peace accord so by March if so that will end the violent phase at least of an insurgency that was founded in 1964 Um, And it would uh, really be a turning point for Colombia's history, I think.
0: I I want to get to the issue of the ambivalence and the timing, because last week we heard from uh, Rodrigo Ladono, uh, who goes by the nom de guerre, Timoshenko, uh, saying, well, we're going to get to that peace accord, but six months may be a little bit too much. For, For folks who have been waiting 51 years for this to end, it seems like the FARC are drawing out the ending a
3: bit. Yes, and, and I think the FARC are probably having some trouble convincing all of their cadres to go along with uh, what has all been agreed to so far. Uh, th- like the, also, you know, for the FARC, this is this is the best moment for them. Uh, <laughs> they have the cameras, they have the uh, um, the, the media attention. And once they turn in their weapons, uh, or once they sign a peace accord, they're a rather unpopular political party that's relegated to the fr- rural fringes of national politics. Uh, so they're going to probably want to make the most of the present moment. But yeah, the, the whole issue of the timing is a big deal. Uh, President Santos, like up abruptly, uh, traveled to Havana on the 23rd to meet with the FARC leader, who is also flying to Havana. Um, And uh, according to an account that President Santos gave to the New York Times, when President Santos showed up and met with Timochenko before the formal agreement, Timochenko tried to back away from this uh, six-month commitment and Santos said, this was the whole reason I came up here. This has to happen. You'll notice the six-month commitment is not in the written communique that the two sides uh, put out, but Santos said it flat out in his speech in Havana. and then over the next few days, uh, you saw Timoshenko's statement. Basically, the, the FARC, yes, they want to be in the position they're in for as long as possible. They also, um, they, there are a lot of uh, uh, details to put on what was agreed already. A lot of points in parentheses that aren't completely agreed, even though they've uh, gotten through these agenda points. Um, you know, one, one of the big ones right now, maybe, uh, what kind of crimes uh, in this transitional justice agreement get hardened, which ones don't, what will, the, the phrase used for people who admit to all of the crimes against humanity and, and more crimes they committed is restriction of liberty. That can be a lot of things. That can be being confined to a relatively less austere jail, or it could be just wearing an ankle bracelet and going all around the country and you know, you know know flipping the bird to your victims. It, it, it could be a lot of things, so they really have to define what this means. Um, and there's several issues like that on the early accords on, on land, on drug policy, and on political participation. And so it could take more than six months. They also have to figure out what disarmament is going to look like, um, how they're going to ratify what they agreed to, um, uh, which are are, uh, pretty hard issues as well.
0: In your statement on the ankle braces, I think that that particular attitude is one of concern for a lot of people, not just in Colombia. The idea that the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, are going to be able to walk away with, 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 with some sense of um, they didn't pay um, for many of the crimes. And Timoshenko himself has been identified by the U.S. government as somebody who's behind the whole drug strategy that the FARC has used. So I, I wonder whether there isn't this sort of blithely wanting to extend the process because they think they may be getting away with something.
3: If, if they follow what was just agreed to, they, they probably will get away with a maximum of five to eight years in this alternative uh, uh, or, or restricted liberty that is not, you know, prison with cell blocks and striped pajamas. Though they'll, they'll, they'll be probably in some situation where even as they're showing contrition to their victims and admitting their crimes, which of course hurts their image, they will also be able to meet with uh, pe- reporters, probably maintain websites, uh, set up their political movements, all the kinds of things you can't do in a regular jail. I should say um, the same system will apply to the many, many, many military officers who uh, uh, are accused of serious human rights abuses. And and for the Colombian military in their moment of victory, this is going to be a pretty difficult moment also to have uh, a lot of rank and file and and lower ranking officers not only admitting what they did but having to actually rat out their superiors. You you brought up the issue though of FARC who participated in narco-trafficking. Most, not all, but most paramilitary leaders, the Colombian right-wing pro-government paramilitaries who who demobilized in the mid 2000s, most of those guys who who participated in narco-trafficking, also um, got away with serving time for that. The legal formula they use is by calling you know, the act of taking up arms and rebelling um, a political crime, um, and then narco-trafficking as a connected crime because you did it to raise money for the guns to take up arms. Um, so it's very possible there are 60 FARC members, as far as I can tell, that's my best count, who are wanted by U.S. courts, indicted or otherwise, or prosecutors, to uh, stand trial here, mostly for narco-trafficking. If those are defined as connected political crimes, uh, they will not be extradited to the United States or or punished in Colombia for sending tons of cocaine here. I think the U.S. government has quietly been indicating that they'll be okay with that as long as the FARC really do get out of the game, that these FARC members really get out of the drug game. Um, More difficult politically here, I think, will be FARC members, and it's not a large number, but the few FARC members who are wanted by U.S. courts and prosecutors for killing or kidnapping U.S. citizens. Um, There's a few of those who are at large and wanted, and um, they, if they... Confess to what they did and make amends to their victims um, will serve at most five to eight years in this alternative jail and uh, that will be very hard much harder for I think the United States to swallow politically than the drug guys
0: This is a little bit different than than the end of the civil wars in Central America that we saw where the military had some blanket amnesties that that were still trying to get people tried for human rights abuses during that so so we 're going to see sort of a mid ground here perhaps with the peace process in Colombia.
3: There's been a steady evolution in um, how people view the aftermath of peace processes, especially human rights and peace processes. Um, when uh, the when the Guatemalans and Salvadorans ended their wars, um, forgive and forget amnesty was a perfectly legitimate way to do, seen as a legitimate way to do this. Uh, the military, um, you know, got away with it and the guerrillas got away with their crimes and everybody walked away until, as you said, there's, you know, these, these debates are still happening in a huge way in both of those countries very painfully for the victims right now.
0: So many questions of justice before we get to peace. The last time you were in the program, you talked about the warning of the peace is not the end of this fifty-one year struggle. The idea that things can go wrong in the peace and in the immediate post peace process, that that not all of the FARC cadres may come in from the war and and may stay out in the jungle and and still doing work. And then there's the whole issue of the ELN, the second rebel group where there's a second peace process. So peace is not necessarily at hand in Colombia.
3: No. Um, and, you know, some analysts, and they could be right, say that at least the immediate post, uh, post-accord period will be uh, even more violent than, than what we're seeing right now. Um, there's three reasons for that. You just named a couple of them. One is uh, demobilized FARC. Uh, you're probably, you're going to have Probably thirty thousand FARC members, support personnel, family members, militias, others, who uh, demobilize all at once. And I think the rank and file will, you know, the the kids in the FARC will probably jump at the chance to be reunited with their families, have educational opportunities. The older, longtime veteran FARC leaders may jump at the chance to retire, to uh, or to participate in politics. I worry about the mid-level guys, the front commanders, the people in charge of money laundering and finances and who control drug trafficking corridors. Unless the government really leans hard on them, they are going to be super tempted uh, to uh, keep in control of what they have right now. The second factor you named is is the ELN, as with some smaller, similarly old group, but guerrilla group, um, and um, the heirs of the paramilitary, the so-called what they call in Colombia bandas criminales, um, another four to eight thousand uh, fighters scattered around the country in regional groups. Um, neither of those groups are national in scope. Um, they, I mean, the ELN has a national leadership, but they're only in a few tiny regions. Um, but they could be, both be poised to grow and pour into FARC-dominated areas if if the Colombian state can't get in there very quickly. Um, we hope the government is um, still having talks about talks with the ELN. They've met for something like two hundred days in the last two or three years, uh, uh, trying to figure out how to get talks started. But they have not officially started yet. Um, so the ELN could, if it remains in the field. Um, uh, benefit from from scooping up ex FARC or, or moving into uh, FARC controlled areas. That is a real concern, and of course there'll be more of a free for all in zones that the FARC has long been uh, dominant in. Um, uh, and you know the you know the, these are real concerns, um, and there's always going to be narco traffic and organized crime in Colombia, just as you see in regions all over Mexico and and Central America. However, an, ent- an interesting thing has happened in the last just over two months. Uh, It was on July 20th that the FARC declared its latest unilateral ceasefire and the government uh, responded in kind with um, uh, de-escalation measures. Um, In late September uh, there's a think tank in Colombia called CERAC that keeps a close count of conflict events. They said those 60 days were the least violent in Colombia since 1975. So, if that kind of discipline and you know that kind of equilibrium can somehow remain in the post-conflict period, um, and spoilers can be kept at bay, and the government can actually implement programs in the near term, uh, we may see uh, Colombians immediately seeing the benefits. And you know, most of the population was born after 1975; they'll see conditions they've never known in their lives. But then there's the other scenario of uh, the vacuums being uh, disputed violently all over the country
0: well on that note thank you so much adam isaacson of the washington office on latin america wola join us via skype from washington dc on latin pulse today thanks so much
3: all right thank you rick it was good to talk to you again
1: this planet we call earth abundant with new food new cures new life an amazing place please don't let it vanish without a trace Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call one 800 L L
0: W W F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Since the end of the summer, Venezuela has traded diplomatic barbs with two of its neighbors, Colombia and Guyana. Venezuela's President, Nicolás Maduro, declared martial law in the Colombian border region ordering the forced deportation of thousands of unauthorized Colombian immigrants. Maduro blamed Colombian paramilitaries active in the border region and connected to the Colombian Civil War for destabilizing the Venezuelan economy. To Venezuela's east, Guyana's president, David Granger, has accused the Venezuelan military of mobilizing to grab disputed territory in a region rich with new oil discoveries. We asked David Smiley for context on these tensions. Smiley is with Tulane University. He's the co-author of Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, and he's the author and editor of the Venezuelan Politics and Human Rights blog. He joined us via Skype from New Orleans. Here's the first part of our discussion.
2: No, I think there's still more to come, especially on the Guyana border, uh, the Guyana border, because there, you know, the situation has not actually been resolved. You know, there's a there's a long-term, you know, decades-old. Um, really from the middle of the 20th century dispute between Venezuela uh, and Guayana over the Essequibo which is a region that's that very lightly populated but recently uh, it, oil was discovered there and so that makes it much more valuable and now Venezuela uh, is is really exercising its claim to that territory although the you know Guyana had already brought in ExxonMobil to do some exploration ExxonMobil was the ones that said that there was oil there. And so, you know, it, it's one of these these long-term claims uh, that have to do with uh, power politics going all the way back to the 19th century. And that's that's not going to be resolved, I think, anytime soon. I think it's, you know, they've they brought it back to the United Nations. The United Nations has appointed a committee to, to look into it further. But I don't expect any kind of resolution to that uh, anytime soon. And I think, you know, it's something that's going to be causing tension between the two countries for some time to come. I think on the Colombian side, you know, tensions have calmed a bit. Uh, at the end of uh, August, Venezuela closed the border and started deporting Colombians, saying that there was paramilitaries there that were, you know, carrying out contraband and vi- responsible for violence. Um, the you know uh, since then. Maduro has met with Santos uh, uh, at the end of de- September, and they, they came together to, and had an agreement to return their ambassadors to their respective countries and uh, to solely work towards a normalization. However, they didn't uh, discuss any timeline for reopening the border, and I think you know I think that's that's the border is probably going to be closed until after the elections. And uh, there is also there was an agreement uh, between Venezuela and Unasur. Uh, to allow Colombians that were deported to return to Venezuela and normalize their situation if they if they want, and I think you know that's uh, that's uh, a symptom of of the uh, you know the government is listening to the criticism that it's received over the treatment of of Colombians and uh, you know, the de- sort of the collective deportation that they were subjected to. But that situation is, is normalizing, but it's it's going to keep on uh, being a problem for a couple months more at least.
0: We have seen. That uh, Ban Ki Moon has been involved in in trying to uh, negotiate some diplomacy between the various countries involved here, and and I I believe got involved in trying to get um, a restoration of the of the ambassadors between um, Guyana and Venezuela to to happen. You mentioned the elections though, and and so all of this is happening with with the the local and and. National elections uh, for for Congress ab- about to happen here in in December, and so um there's a, v- a real political mood to what's going on in Venezuela right now, is there not?
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean as you know the government is confronting very important legislative elections in in December, and these are these are really of transcendental importance for chavismo because they are very far behind in the polls Nicolas Maduro has 25 percent popularity and that historically during during Chavismo has been the, the closest indicator of electoral results for the Socialist Party um, and they could well lose control of the first lose control of a branch of the national government for the first time in 15 years and if they do that it will provide some momentum for the opposition to push for a recall referendum furthermore it could put them into position to select the next two, Uh, electoral council rectors whose whose terms will be up at the end of 2016, which could greatly facilitate this push for a recall referendum. And so they're very important elections. The government is very far behind. They're very far behind because of inflation and scarcities these are problems that have to do with venezuela's economic model there's unabated crime and violence that have to do with venezuela's failed policing model and so it's it's a little hard for them right now uh, with elections uh, uh two months away to make significant changes and say hey we were wrong we're going to change something now you know especially when when economic changes you know uh, generally are unpopular with austerity measures so you know, these these border disputes, uh, you know, basically, uh, they all have, there are real issues behind them. There's a real issue in the in the border dispute between uh, Guyana and Venezuela. But the fact that they're addressing it now uh, and and doing it in such a way that they're really beating their chest about, a lot about it, and, and they're trying to drum up some nationalism. I think, you know, in the case of Colombia, it's a little bit more complex. Venezuela's, you know, uh, you have to assume that for these elections, they know that the biggest problem they confront is, uh, is scarcities. And you can assume that the government is tr- going to try to ameliorate these scarcities uh, before, between now and the elections. And to do that, it's going to be, in, especially in the western part of the country, it's going to be very difficult uh, when there's such a huge problem with contraband. So much, so much of these basic goods can be brought across the border into Colombia, whether you're talking about rice or corn flour or gasoline, and brought across the, to Colombia and sold for 10 times the price. There's just this huge incentive for contraband. And it's going to be very, very difficult. It would be very difficult for the government to ameliorate uh, scarcities with all this contraband. So this this is a government that really believes in control, that really thinks that they can shut this border down and stem contraband. They might slow it for a while. It probably won't work for very long. But I think they see this as key to their electoral success. At the same time, they have this figure of paramilitaries, which functions as this sort of symbol. They can blame the paramilitaries for uh their economic woes saying that the reason that their scarcity is that everything goes to colombia they can also blame them paramilitaries for the crime and violence in venezuela so it, it's a they're sort of a perfect scapegoat there is a problem with paramilitaries but you know it's, it's being completely exaggerated and used uh to, to explain all the shortcomings of of this government uh shortcomings that have very identifiable sources you don't need to uh, have the figure of paramilitaries to understand why venezuela's in the situation it is but so so yeah both of these border problems i think the, the context that uh, makes these problems right now as opposed to a year ago or a year in the future is is these uh, legislative elections that are coming up in december
0: Let's be clear. When we talk about paramilitaries, we're talking about what we're talking about are paramilitary groups that that are whether they are demobilized or not from from Colombia as part of the Colombian um, Civil War, which seems to be winding down. And so um, there, there is a problem with 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 paramilitaries. But but you're saying that that it's being exaggerated.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's been a a problem with paramilitaries literally for decades, you know, on the Venezuelan border, and there's there's a problem with any time you have armed irregular actors. And you have borders. Well, they use those borders to go back and forth and elude local authorities. And so there's been a problem with paramilitaries in the Venezuelan border, really, for for years, if not decades. And so, and and of course, they're violent. They get involved. You know, they're not just involved in the, the civil war anymore. They're involved in extortion. They're involved in kidnapping. They're involved in all kinds of crime, including contraband. But the thing is, contraband, you know, paramilitaries are not the primary source of contraband. There's basically in border areas, virtually everybody's involved in contraband because it's so lucrative. Nobody can afford to not be involved, whether you're talking about a sophisticated operation of, tanking, of taking tanker trucks across with the consent of the military or, you know, a father taking a tank of gas across uh, to sell it to buy you know, books for his kids going to school in September. I mean, or, or people bringing back a couple, of, bringing across a couple of cases of milk. I mean, that's what contraband is. It's much, it's much more small scale. Uh, it it's it has a lot to do with the Venezuelan military. It has very little to do with the, uh, the Colombian paramilitaries. I'm sure they're involved, but they're not. They're not the major, or even the most. Uh, they're not the most important, or even in, uh, the most uh, the most important source.
0: So this particular issue also points to some of the corruption that's involved with the venezuelan military
2: yeah absolutely i mean i think you know if you just look at the if you look at the amounts uh of money involved i mean you know just a quart of milk if you can get a quart of milk in venezuela at regulated price it costs about 10 cents you bring it across the border, you can sell it for a dollar, and you can you can imagine you know how much you can make in a truck that has a hundred thousand liters of milk in in it, you no? Know? So the, the incentives are so huge that uh, you know organized p- people involved in contraband can pay everybody off, and of course the Venezuelan government, the Venezuelan military already had the whole, you know, the whole border basically controlled all these checkpoints that are now closing. And so, you know, what was going on? How is that getting uh, beyond that? You know, it it ranges from uh, active involvement to acquiescence uh, in in letting contraband get across the border.
0: Thank you so much, David Smildy of Tulane University, the co-editor of the book, Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, and the editor of the Venezuela. Politics, and Human Rights blog. Our guest today on Latin Pulse joining us via Skype from New Orleans. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. We'll
0: be hearing more from that interview later this month. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our team, assistant producer Brooklyn Engel and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program
2: is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.